Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks powerfully to us and provides us instruction for how to live. Lord, as we consider these words uh, from the book of Romans, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that your spirit would transform our hearts, that we might uh, be caused to grow in our love of you uh, and in our uh, service of your world because of all you've done for us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, it kind of feels like that in the two weeks that I went on leave, the world kind of massively imploded. I mean, as if it didn't already feel like that with COVID-19 and lockdowns and shutdowns, now we seem to be in sort of the middle of a a, a global uh, war about racism. And of course, uh, it's a a war that is uh, an, an argument that is full of heat and debate and not a lot of nuance. But one of the things that I've noticed over the last two weeks, particularly in my Instagram feed, uh, is that there are a, a group of people who I, I follow, of my friends, who are spending a lot of their time uh, mercifully no longer posting about how nice their breakfasts are, but instead uh, showing me uh, and, and help trying to educate me uh, in my race, my unknown racism. Uh, and so it all started with uh, Instagram becoming very boring one day where there were just uh, black pictures everywhere as a sign of solidarity. Uh, and then uh, for many people, this continual posting of, uh, of, of reasons why I'm a racist and they're not. Uh, and that's kind of fascinating uh, on all sorts of levels. Uh, and I want to come back to that uh, at the end. But I think that Romans has actually some powerful words to say to our culture right at this moment in time. Let me also say, lest I be accused of something, that of course uh, the death of George Floyd was a tragedy Uh, that should never have occurred and the people responsible ought to be held accountable. But what does Romans have to say to this world in which we live? Well, you'll know uh, before I went away that we were working our way through Romans and it actually, we're going pretty slow because Paul packs heaps into this uh, op- this letter and these opening chapters. Paul is the apostle of the gospel, that is, he's been appointed by Jesus, we read in chapter 1, verse 1, to lead people to Jesus and to lead people to faith in Jesus. Faith in the gospel, in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul kind of gives us this great summary of this gospel in uh, chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. Salvation and righteousness, these are what come to us from God when we respond to the gospel. But of course, if we are a people in need of saving and a people in need of God's 
righteousness to be given to us, then it makes sense that Paul needs to prove that we actually are people who need that gift. We need to be saved. We need righteousness given to us. And of course, that's what we've been doing as we've been working our way through these opening two chapters is is seeing how, yeah, we do suck. So Paul started in verses 18 to 32 of chapter 1, kind of outlining the way in which uh, people are bad. And he, he had these sins, murder, greed, sexual immorality. And he talked about how God was angry at these sorts of sins. And, and, and that in his wrath, he lets us reap what we sow. He, he, he lets us bear the consequences of our poor behavior and our sin against him. And of course, then we saw that lest we think, oh, well, it serves the murderers right. Of course, they need saving, but I'm okay. Well, Paul, in, verses, in chapter, the opening part of chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, makes the point that actually, no, you can't, you can't think like that because not only do those people suck, but even you suck who thinks you're a good moral person unlike those others who he's mentioned in chapter 1. And so he turns his mind there to, to, to the, 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 the moralizer, the, ju- the one who judges. And he says, verse 1 of chapter 2, you who judge condemn yourselves because you have no leg to stand on. Well, the first part of our reading today in the second half of chapter 2 is again another slap in the face for us. Uh, Because again, there may still have been people left uh, at this point who think, well, he's not talking about me. There's the murderers, yep. They're bad. There's uh, the, 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 the Gentiles who think that they're not as bad as those, but then what about the Jews? We are God's chosen people. Certainly, we don't need saving. We have the law. We have circumcision. Of course, we will be okay. And Paul says, actually, no. This doesn't help you either. He says, verses 19 through about 24, if you have the law of God, then what it should actually show you is that you are not indeed some sort of guide for the blind or light for those in darkness, verse 19. That he, he's, he's effectively uh, asking a series of, of, of hypothetical questions to which the answer is supposed to be, no, you, you, you know this is not the case. You are not some instructor for the foolish or teacher for children, but rather you are a lawbreaker. And from verses 21 through 24, he lists these rhetorical questions, inviting his Jewish listeners to realise their own hypocrisy, that they fall short of God's holy standards revealed in the law, and so they shouldn't think themselves better off because they've inherited the law by virtue of who they are and who their parents were, and their grandparents. And then, of course, he moves to circumcision from verse 25, a source of great comfort for the Jewish people in the first century. I'm going to be okay with God because I've been circumcised. This is a sign that I'm in, 
and that I can't be kicked out. But Paul again says that this is just like having the law. Circumcision is actually only meant to be a sign of what's meant to be going on in your life, which is law-keeping. So circumcision is a sign that you're part of the covenant people of God who keep the law. But of course, as soon as you break one little part of the law, you're condemned by the law and you might as well not be circumcised, verse 25. And so Paul actually offers then in verses 26 and 7, another hypothetical argument to show them the lack of value that circumcision actually has for salvation. He says, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, even though you have, writ- you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. What Paul's saying, he's not saying that that, that person exists, this a perfect uncircumcised lawkeeper, but what he is saying is that, see, circumcision doesn't matter. What matters is keeping the law and, and we all fail. We all fall short there. We all suck. That's the point he's been making time and time again since uh, the, the second half of chapter one. And, and it's all rather depressing, really, isn't it? Before God, even the chosen people of God stand condemned. Lawbreakers, sinners. But in verse 28, Paul moves to hope. He tells us that because we're all in the same boat, regardless of our heritage, regardless of what we've been up to in our private lives, he says, you are all in need of God to work in your lives. The hope for Jew and non-Jew alike, verse 28, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. We start to get the road out, don't we? having convinced us of our state before God, of being condemned, of falling short of his standards, we now get the road out. And mercifully, it's not by cutting the skin off our delicate bits, but it's by the Spirit of God circumcising our hearts. Paul here, verse 29, telling us, that each of us actually needs an inward work of God by his Holy Spirit to change us if we are to escape our desperate and hopeless predicament before him. To truly be part of the people of God, we need God to intervene in our lives. We need God to go to work on our hearts. We need to be, to use the language of Jesus, born again. And what Paul is reminding the Jewish people of the day, but he's also reminding us, is that we must not confuse outward signs for inward realities. 
for the Jewish people, circumcision was always supposed to be an outward sign of an inward reality, that they trusted the Lord, that they had entered into covenant with Him and that they were committed to doing as He said and shining as a light to the nations. But instead, they took it, they put the cart before the horse. Well, I'm circumcised, so I'm okay. And we can be a bit guilty of this too sometimes as Christians, can't we? We, we, we put the, the, the outward sign before the inward reality. Uh, and uh, the classic example being baptism. Baptism is the, the, the Christian replacement for, for circumcision. It is the, the initiation ceremony uh, for, for, for the believer into the church. And it is an outward sign of the inward reality of, of membership of, of the covenant people of God, the new covenant people of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, baptism does nothing without the work of the Spirit. And so, sometimes... We forget that. Sometimes we think, we get upset that our grandchildren haven't been baptised. And we forget that it wouldn't matter if they were or they weren't. What matters is what's going on in their hearts. Or sometimes uh, people bring their children in to get baptised when they never come to church. Why? When there's no effort on the, in, on the part of the individual to have a committed relationship with God. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality, just as circumcision was. We need God's Spirit to change our hearts. And notice what happens when the person... When this happens to us, when we are radically changed by the Spirit of God and have our hearts circumcised by the Spirit, such a person's praise is not from other people, end of verse 29, but from God. We now become focused on doing God's will in every circumstance, regardless of the cost, regardless of how it makes us look, regardless of what people think of us. Now, this idea that Paul introduces here of, of an inward work of God by His Spirit being what saves us, not, this outward, uh, not these outward signs, not this rule-keeping, not this law-keeping, not this membership of an ethnic group. This, this is mind-blowing for some of Paul's first readers, perhaps for you and I today. That, that, that God is actually more concerned with what's going on in your heart than he is with the things that you do. And for the Jew, 
who's listening to Paul say these things or who's reading these words that Paul has written, uh, they may have thought that Paul was actually undermining the very foundations of their faith by calling into question the, the, the usefulness of their Jewishness for their salvation. What value is there in being a Jew then if, if it doesn't count for anything? And so Paul goes to answer this and a few of other of their potential objections through verses 1 to 8 of chapter 3. He says, there's still great value in being part of the ethnic people of God whom God chose to to carry his word to the nations, to to, uh, be the place where the Messiah would come. The Jewish people have great responsibility and, and have great value in being part of uh, God's salvation plan for the world, verses 1 and 2. Paul says secondly in verses 3 and 4 that God is still true to his covenant promises even if people have not been. So that's the next thing. Well, if if I'm not saved because I'm a Jew, then doesn't that make God unfaithful to his promises? Well, Paul says no, verses 3 and 4. No, God is still faithful. Thirdly, he says that even though we need God to save us and to do this work in our hearts, verses 5 and 6, God is still a just judge. That this doesn't undermine his justice. He doesn't, he doesn't go into a lot of detail about these things, but he's just saying that you, don't, don't mishear me. Don't pull things out of whack. A, a, a lot of the, the, the Christian faith in understanding a God who is much bigger than us involves holding things in intention and when we pull one way or the other too far uh, that's when we start to go out of whack and finally the last objection he addresses very briefly and I'm addressing them as briefly as Paul is uh, in verses 7 and 8 is that we shouldn't keep sinning because this brings God glory by saving us This is just slanderous and stupid logic, Paul says, which deserves just condemnation in verse 8. It is actually the argument, isn't it, of an uncircumcised heart that hasn't changed and doesn't want to please God with all its will. So, the people of God, the covenant people of God, Even they are in big trouble without God's salvation, without God's gift of righteousness, without the Holy Spirit coming and circumcising their hearts, changing their hearts. If you weren't convinced before, I hope you are now, that we need God. But it can be hard to hear And so that's why I want to roll back to kind of what's going on in our world and what's going on in my Instagram feeds at the moment. Because there's something here for both the one being educated, me, and the one doing the education that I think uh, is really, really helpful. And the first thing, speaking to me, is that having our sin exposed doesn't feel good it doesn't feel good when you realize that uh, you're wrong that that you've been unkind that you've done the wrong thing Uh, 
Now, I'm not saying I necessarily uh, agree with the critique that I'm racist, but nonetheless, the last two weeks have been a moment for all of us to consider our deeply held beliefs and attitudes, and that's not comfortable. Like, reading the first two chapters of Romans is not fun. It's not comfortable, because the message is, you're condemned without God. And that doesn't feel nice to hear. Even the holiest, wokest person you know is condemned, is in deep doo-doo. You and I, totally stuffed without God. And when we have our sin exposed, have our true reality exposed, we have two responses, don't we? We can react by getting defensive. Well, I'm not, no, I'm not racist. I just don't like the look of them. Or, no, I'm not sinful, I'm good. I've been to church all of my life. But if that's how we respond, then that's a sign that we haven't actually let the Spirit of God come in and start to do the work of circumcision in our hearts, of changing our hearts. Because the other way we can respond when we have our sin exposed is repentance. Wow, I didn't realise that I behaved in such a way. I didn't realise that those views were wrong. I didn't realise that I couldn't earn my way into the kingdom of God. I am stuffed and I need God's help. Please, God, help me to change. So when we have our sins exposed, it doesn't feel good. But let's not be defensive. But rather, let's run to the Lord with repentant hearts. But there's also a message here for those who continue to feel like this does not apply to them. I think, uh, not for all, but for some of my friends who are, have, like, they used to literally post bikini pics, and now it's just like endless pictures uh, and things telling me about why I'm a racist. It's like, it's mind-blowingly fascinating how such a thing can happen. But for, for people like that, uh, I detect... A, 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 and I could be wrong. You've got you to do your own heart language. But this is just a useful thing for me to think about, and I hope for you. But proving that you're less sinful than someone else, proving that you're less racist than someone else, doesn't save you. It doesn't help you in the grand economy of God's salvation for the world. It doesn't actually solve the problems that you want solved. 
in many posts, I detect uh, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector that Jesus tells in Luke 18. You might know it. Jesus says to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get, as if God didn't already know that. Because he wasn't saying it for God, was he? But the tax collector stood at a, different, at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, rather than the other, that Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Today, it's not the loud prayer of self-righteousness in the temple, but the social media platform where we like to trumpet our self-righteousness. But justification, salvation, doesn't come from having a politically correct social media feed or having friends in the right places, or having done all of the right things, like given a tenth of all you get and fasting twice a week, or not being a robber. No. It comes from being humble enough to realise you don't even deserve to look up to God, to the vague direction of God. Because you are so broken. That's where Paul's trying to get us to in these opening chapters of Romans. That we might stand there and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you cannot utter those words, then you will never understand the beauty and the wonder of God's grace. You can never understand the majesty and power of God's holiness. When I was uh, in a former life as a youth pastor, uh, all the time I had this conversation with, with people about how can God send people to hell? And I would always say, well, where do you think he should send you? Because I'm convinced that I ought to go there. So it's not out of the realms of uh, possibility for me that a whole lot of other people ought to go there too. Our struggle with, with a God of, of, of justice is actually, I think, less about trying to deal with God and more about trying to deal with ourselves because it is hard to admit that we are broken. It is hard to admit that we are sinners. It can be painful. It can be humiliating. And it takes great vulnerability. But it's there in the brokenness and the pain 
that we find God. I think the saddest thing about the last two weeks is that the, as people long for, for justice and for, and for people to be treated fairly, there becomes this separating of people into who's in and who's out rather than a realising that we're all out and we all need God's help. Because here's the thing for our world right now. When we understand what Paul's saying here in these first two chapters about the brokenness of the world and our individual brokenness, and when we allow God's Spirit to come and change our hearts and circumcise us and point us towards a better future, look at what the better future is. You've just been in Revelation the last two weeks. I'll go there again. Verse, uh, chapter 7. And I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in the hand. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The Bible pictures sinners saved by God from every nation, tribe, race. And it pictures us gathered together in perfect equality. Worshipping Jesus, the Lamb who sits on the throne, who has given us the great gift of salvation. We have the solution this world longs for. Because we hold the message of God's goodness and grace. The only hope is Jesus. What Paul wants to communicate with us today is that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is the road out of our hard-hearted rebellion against him. That the gospel, by his spirit, is how we change our hearts, how we deal with our problems. And this good news, this gospel, is what gives us hope. Hope that comes not from changed circumstances, but from God and what he has promised and what he will do in our lives as we humble ourselves before him. Instead of the, the hollow hope of religious rule-keeping or uh, educating people in the right ways of being, we have this holy hope of an eternity with God with all people who trust in him and allow him to change their hearts. Or may God work powerfully in your heart today.